welcome to the weekly podcast of Trinity Life Church. We are a local church that gathers in downtown Toronto on Sundays and all throughout our city during the week. Now our mission is to help people discover their identity and destiny in Christ so we can influence our city, our country, and our world. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to have you. Our services are Sunday from 10.30 to noon at Jarvis Collegiate. Enjoy this week's podcast. Well, that was cool. I love, love kids. Love them so much, that's why I have four of them. <laughs> um, actually, neat story. Uh, before I jump into our message for this morning, um, you know, my wife and I, we, we struggled with uh, our kids. Well, not everybody struggles with their kids, but we uh, had um, been diagnosed. She was diagnosed with uh, endometriosis uh, stage four. This is about maybe uh, f- uh, five years ago, and so if you don't know anything about that, it's just your ovaries and everything just becomes clumped up and nothing gets released through the fallopian tubes and stuff like that. So as we were moving here to Toronto to um, plant the church and we met Mike and Missy and we started sharing our story and everybody was praying for uh, our journey and that became really uh, integral and so God was so powerful he showed up and uh, Abraham was our, uh, our fourth one that we um, uh, gave birth to and or Linda gave birth to. I was just in the room. Um, and God had just, you know, miraculously, you have a 2% chance of conceiving if you have endometriosis. And when you get to stage four, you're pretty much like, uh, it's a very low percentage, if at all. And so anyway, so, we, you know, it's been a journey for us. And we've prayed for multiple people throughout our lifetime to have children that had difficulty conceiving. And for those of you guys who know, maybe you've experienced it or maybe you have a relative that experienced it. It's, a very, it's, a, it's very difficult when you want a baby and you, you can't have one. So... Uh, but we had a friend visit us uh, not too long ago, and she also had uh, late stages of endometriosis. And so uh, uh, Yelena spent some time with her and prayed for her. And um, uh, last week she, this week, it was this week, she texted Yelena and says, Ah, you prayed too hard because I'm pregnant. <laughs> and uh, it's just amazing to see how God... Um, uh, in our personal lives, have, have used children to kind of remind us of his miraculous, like, power. And so what I want to do is, um, I know not every one of you guys are eager to have children yet. I've been trying to encourage some of you guys, Curtis, and you know, some of you guys to, uh, to, to get, jump on the bandwagon. But I, I want to pray for our, our church in general, not so much that you would get pregnant, uh, but if that's your desire, that that would happen too. But as we, as a church, we continue to grow in the, um, the gifting that God's given to us, that when we lay hands on people, that they would be healed, and that, when, that we would learn how to father and mother people in our city by expecting the supernatural gifts of our, of our Heavenly Father uh, to be used through us, and, uh, and not in any kind of like, you know, fantastic, like, uh, uh, fireworks way, but just simple prayers, laying hands on people, and seeing how God uses those things to release healing into their life. And not just healing, but great joy. So I'm going to pray that over us before we jump into our passage today. God, thank you that we are conduits of the Father's love. That, man, you were like a channel in which you just want to pour your love down on people around us. And, God, we've been recipients of that. You know, my family, we've been recipients of that. Our church, we've been recipients of that. Many 
uh, in our church, Lord, they've prayed through seasons, and Lord, you've given them children, and God, you've healed bodies, you've healed women, um, Lord, just so many different uh, stories that, God, we see um, released in our community. God, I just pray uh, that you would increase your anointing over our church in this realm of um, uh, healing and praying for those who, Lord, need your healing touch. And whether that be um, because they're infertile or, Lord, there's something in their life that's hindering them from greater joy. Uh, God, I pray that for you would just release a greater amount of the Father's love through us onto people. And that that would have biological, physiological effects on people's lives. That, Lord, by our presence, you know, carrying the Father and the Holy Spirit, just being in a room with people, that that would release a sense of healing onto those who have been struggling, those who struggle mentally, emotionally, physically. Uh, God, I pray that we would have um, a better mindset to know that we can walk in this privilege where we can release the Father's heart and the Father's love and the Father's healing power over people. And so I want to just pray that over a church. Thank you, God, that we get to experience these fun adventures with you. And we pray all these things through Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Cool. Well, we've been going through a series called Rethinking, and this week we're talking about rethinking calling. Uh, what does it mean to rethink through your calling? And uh, we're going through the book of First Corinthians and just slowly kind of walking through all the different parts of First uh, Corinthians, and it's such a rich book. It has a lot to do with the life of the congregation, the life of the church, the life of the individual believer. And if you're not a believer here today, it also has a lot of information and a lot of background as to how people become believers and people became Christians, especially in a world where it was very pluralistic. A lot of different ideas flying around, and that's pretty similar to the world that we live in as well. A lot of different philosophies, a lot of different world religions, and yet a lot of people during this time uh, in, uh, in the first century came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so this week we're talking about the idea of calling. And I want to just kind of sow a seed into your head because um, this will kind of drive the theme throughout this sermon at least. And it's this idea that you were called to be a subversive person for the kingdom of God. And the word subversive doesn't have a very positive connotation. The reason why we use the, words, uh, the word subvers- subversion or subversive is uh, because we talk about, you know, governments being toppled by a subversive group or systems being toppled. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, almost like a revolution. Um, but I want to use this word in a very kind of kingdom-oriented way because I don't know if you realize this, but you were called to be a subversive for the kingdom of God on earth. So what happened was when Adam and Eve chose to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what happened was there was an inversion of the value system. When God created everything, I think we have a picture of a, a beautiful place. Um, you know, I, it was probably better than this. I don't know what Eden looked like, but, you know, I, I could go to this place right now. Uh, and so, in a sense, what happened was there was an inversion. It's kind of hard to tell that Teresa just flipped the picture upside down. Let's go back and forth. There you go. This is uh, right side up, upside down. And there is an inversion that happened when... <laughs> You're making us dizzy. Uh, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, when they chose knowledge of good and evil over God, that it took God's world system and it inverted it. It perverted it. And so what used to be up was now down. What used to be down is now up. And it looks very similar to your eyes, but when you play it out in the long term, and it's looking very, very different. For instance, there was an inversion of power. God created man with choice so that we could have willful and meaningful relationships with each other and with him because there is no real 
love without real choice. Try getting married to somebody and forcing them. Um, there's no real love there. But when Adam and Eve chose the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what happened was free will was inverted. It was perverted to an extreme form of autonomy. So whereas a dependent relationship on God ensured checks and balances of power, now mankind uses free will to manipulate and oppress one another. Instead of stewarding the resources of the world, we exhaust the resources of the world. Instead of creating economies that are healthy and equitable, we create economies that uh, form superpowers and tyrants. And so the paradox of this passage that was read earlier from 1 Corinthians is that it's not so much that God's ways are foolish, because that tends to be the, the spirit of our age, is that things that are you know, from the Bible or things that are spiritual, things that are of the Christian faith, that seems really foolish. But it's not so much that God's ways are foolish. What happens is that the world was inverted. It says he's not the one who's upside down. Mankind is the one that's upside down. And it's just kind of, we have an upside down perspective at what God is doing. Now here's the thing. There's enough of God's image inside of us that we actually, um, even you know, without much help, we actually work towards creating that injustice. And that's why, for the most part, all of us, we sense injustice. Whether or not you're a believer or not a believer, you sense injustice when it happens. So there's enough, enough of God's image inside of us. It summons the humanity inside of us to know that we need to fix the value systems of the world. But what happens is that without the help of God, we try, we try, we try, but we always manage to not get there quite yet. We've only seen glimpses of what the Garden of Eden really looks like, but we've never seen the whole picture. And so when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes, he comes to talk about a different value system. He comes to talk about the actual downside up or the right side up. He actually talks about the kingdom of God and how that's the real value system that God had created and intended for the earth. And so in Matthew 14, verse 17, Jesus gets baptized, and this becomes his primary message when Jesus walked the earth and preached for those three years. His message was this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you grew up in the church like me, repent was such a negative word because repent means that you had to admit that you had sin and all these things. And it does mean that as well. But the, the way that repent was used primarily was change the way that you think. Like turn your thinking around, literally. And so what, it, what Jesus was saying is this, change the way you think because the culture of heaven is coming to earth. There's a new system that's coming into place. Change your value system because God's kingdom is subverting the current one. God is going to overthrow the inverted system of the world. His kingdom is going to turn the world upside down. And yet when, I, when I personally got a, I grabbed a hold of this concept that Christianity was more than just about the forgiveness of sin, but it was about the ushering of a new value system one that belonged to God. It completely changed my, my life upside down because the things that I looked at before that were important to me became less important. And the things that I looked at before and I despised and I did, really didn't think were important became more and more important in my life. The things that I tried to, I was embarrassed about in our faith became the very things that I was becoming more and more excited about. And when Lynn and I, we began to reorder our life around the values of the kingdom, people would look at us and they'd said, that's really strange. Why would you give that up just so you can do that? And the reality is that when you begin to reorient your life around the culture of God, the culture of the kingdom, 
When people look at you, it's going to be hard for them to understand. Case in point, when Jesus began to preach this message, those who didn't follow him thought he was a nut. But even those who followed him, his disciples, thought he was crazy too. And so when you, when you live this way, the way of the kingdom, when you refuse to conform to the uh, upside-down version or the downside-up version of the, king, of the value system in the world, even Christians sometimes, when, we're, when they're not right-minded, they'll look at you and they'll say, what are you doing? That's off. They don't understand. Even Jesus' disciples misunderstood him quite a bit. But I tell you, when you grab a hold of God's kingdom and his value system and it begins to sink in that we were here, that we're here not just to get a free ticket to heaven, but we're here to be subversives for the kingdom of God, to invert the value system of the world, you gain a new purpose and perspective in life. You're never going to go back to old religion. No matter how hard it gets, you're going to move forward. No matter how misunderstood you are, you're going to keep moving forward because you know you're advancing the kingdom of God, you're subverting the kingdom of the world. You're called to live this way. If you're a follower of Jesus, you were called to live a downside up lifestyle, a kingdom lifestyle, and it changes every decision that you make in your life because this is the way of the cross. I want to talk about three points real quick today. We'll probably talk about two. We'll see how it goes. Um, that talk about the subversive uh, calling that we have. And the first is this, that we have a subversive strategy of the kingdom. And this comes from uh, verse 27 that was read earlier. Paul says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see from this passage, God's strategy is correcting the inverted system in the world. It's, it's downside up, so it looks very counterintuitive. He chooses weak. He chooses the shameful. He chooses the, the lowly, the despised. That's his strategy for turning these, this thing upside down. It's very counterintuitive, but he was very specific about the strategy. Notice the usage of the word chose. How many times does it appear up there? Three times. And what does it mean that God chose? What does it mean that God chose? This is the same word as elected in the Bible. It has the same connotation as the way that we use election today. It has to do with people. You choose people. So almost every time you see this word in the New Testament, it's about choosing people. So Jesus went up to the mountain and he elected his disciples. Mary chose, she elected to sit at the feet of Jesus. Um, the disciples in the book of Acts uh, elected seven people to take care of the church, to organize the church. In Ephesians, God elected in Christ um, the salvation of humanity. So God is choosing, he's electing foolish people, weak people, lowly people, despised people. This team's not going to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> this team may not even win a high school game. In the context of what election really means, God is purposefully trying to invert the system in the world that says you have to be rich, you have to be wise, you have to be influential, you have to come from a noble family in order to have influence. And, and Paul's saying, no, God's doing quite the opposite. And he's doing this, he's choosing people like this because his intention is to subvert the value system of the world, is to change it upside down, to make it right side up, to establish it back to the Garden of Eden. 
This is, uh, in case for you, you theological nerds, this is the uh, idea of the doctrine of election. And uh, I, I uh, read a guy who's, uh, his name is Leslie Newbegin, and I love him so much just because he, he taught me how to uh, share the message of Jesus in a very pluralistic and a very postmodern society. And this is what uh, Leslie Newbegin has to say about what it means to be a part of the chosen or the elect. He says, to be chosen, to be elect, therefore does not mean that the elect are saved and the rest are lost. To be elect in Christ, and there is no other election, means to be incorporated into his mission to the world, to be the bearer of God's saving purpose for the world, to be the sign and the agent and the first fruit of his blessed kingdom, which is for all. It means, therefore, as the New Testament makes abundantly clear, to take our share in his sufferings, to bear the scars of the passion. It means, as Paul says elsewhere, to bear in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of the risen Jesus may manifest and be made available for others. It means that this particular body of people who bear the name of Jesus throughout history, this strange and often absurd company of people, so feeble, so foolish, so often fatally compromised with the world, this body with all its contingency and particularity is the body which has the responsibility of bearing the secret of God's reign throughout world history. What's Nubian saying? Because he's saying a lot in there. He said, when it, what, it, what does it mean to be a part of God's elect, God's chosen vehicle? It means that we were the weak ones so that God can use us to share in Christ's sufferings to give life to the rest of the world. That is our calling. That is your assignment. You may be a doctor. You may be a student. That's your career. Your vocation is to be a subversive people of God. So here's the thing. It doesn't matter if you're good enough. Because if you're not good enough, that's a part of the strategy. It doesn't matter if you're smart enough. Because if you're not smart enough, that's a part of the strategy. It doesn't matter if you came from a lower class family like mine. When we came to the, to the United States, my parents had zilch money in their pocket. We lived in the projects for six years before we bought our first duplex. It was a side-by-side. That means nothing in the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, that is a, an advantage in the kingdom of God. If you came from these origins, God's saying you're not at a, at a disadvantage in the kingdom of God. Your greatest area of struggle can also become your greatest area of ministry. And the way that God uses you is not so much lack of skill or you have skill, you don't have skill. The only hindrance between how God can use you in a mighty way or in a very, you know, smaller way, the, the only difference is not your skill set. It's your pride. But if you manage to humble yourself, and we'll talk about this a bit more, you manage to humble yourself, God will use you more because pride is the only hindrance to how much God can actually use us. So let's move on to, that's a subversive strategy. Let's talk about the subversive people of the kingdom. And I kind of flipped these two passages around. Um, we're going to look at verse 26 real quick. Paul says, for consider your calling. Consider your calling. Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. And not many were of noble birth. What I wanted to do was get across the fact that the reason why I switched these two passages around was that God had a strategy and people were the strategy. 
There is no parliamentary like uh, decision that's being made top down bottom. Like there's no strategic document. We are God's strategy. A subversive people is God's strategy for ushering the kingdom of God, for changing the value system of the world. It's less than average people like you and I having a supernatural God living in them. That's God's best. That's his, that's his best bet. Remember his first team, his first roster? It was composed of, of a, a zealot, a fisherman, uh, a, a 15 to 16-year-old. We don't know how old the apostle John was, but we know he was quite young when he was walking with Jesus. A tax collector. This was Jesus' roster. This is the first 12 that God began using to flip the world upside down. And Paul charges the church in Corinth, and he charges us. He says, consider your calling. Examine. The word consider, it means so much more than just think. It means visualize. And it's, it's kind of a funny uh, translation. But if you literally translate the, 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 what Paul is saying, he says, be considering your calling. It's active. It's ongoing. It's present. Paul's saying, always be thinking about your calling. Envision it. Visualize it. Do you take time to think about your kingdom assignment? You take time to think about your vocation. You take time to think about your finances, maybe vacation that's happening this summer. But Paul's saying, be considering. Think about, envision, plan. What is your calling? So here's a clarifying question for us this morning. Do I regularly examine or envision my calling? A lot of us came to Toronto because it was the next place in our build our resume. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But in the midst of that, as you're building your career, don't just examine your career. Examine your vocation. The word vocation is not uh, equated to uh, career. Vocation is actually, you know, vocation, vocal, vox, call. It's, vocation means you're calling. Examine your calling. So when you begin to pray about, God, what is my calling, there's a lot of factors that come into play. It's understanding more the message of the kingdom of God. It's also looking back at your life experiences and some of the skill sets that God's given to you and begin to assess, begin to, what Paul's saying, consider, think through these things. What are some of the life circumstances that have brought me here today that have positioned me in God's kingdom to, to, to be more effective in God's kingdom? And you begin to look at all of, that, all of that and you aggregate all of that. And it's not a linear process. You don't do this and at the end of the day, you have a list of job like uh, possibilities that come out of this process. So it's not like you go into prayer and then all of a sudden God gives you like five. This is, you know, this is five careers that you should choose. But what happens is that in the midst of this process where you're thinking about what are the core values of the kingdom, what are my life experiences, why am I here, you begin to discover that even the job that you don't like right now, it was a career, but it's now being transformed into a vocation because vocation is tied to the kingdom not your skill set I'm going to give six clarifying questions for uh, thinking through or considering your calling first one is uh, what core values of the kingdom of God uh, what core values of the kingdom of God is God teaching me right now what's God teaching me right now so for instance for us for, for me it's provision comes with vision. If God's giving you a vision for something, he's going to provide for it. And that's a core value that I'm, I'm learning right now and I'm, I'm embracing that. Walk through some of those things. Another question is, how does the kingdom of God look like in different domains of society? 
Because the kingdom of God is not just about the church. The kingdom of God is inverting the world's value system and implementing that across the board. What does it look like in economics? What does it look like in education and health? What does it look like in uh, your field of interest for the kingdom of God to come to that area? Thirdly is, uh, what life experience have I had that shapes my understanding of the kingdom of God? My family, we came uh, to North America as refugees. And that uh, gives us a certain lens to understand the kingdom of God. We realize that we, when I read the Bible and it says that you are aliens, I'm like, yeah, because my parents have a green card. Um, we're, you're, 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 you know, you're foreigners. Yeah, because... You know, we were born from a different... So your background, your experience begins to help you understand more of the kingdom of God. God will begin to use those kinds of things more and more in your life. Fourthly is, what are some inverted world values that bother you so much, but maybe not other people? Because that could mean... Like, let's say you, you're, you're just like, man, like sex trafficking, and a lot of you guys are very you know, passionate about that. You just know, man, why... Why aren't other people doing anything about that? That is such an upside-down way to think about sexuality and about humans and all that stuff. That could be because God is sharpening your vocation. He's clarifying your calling. And it's unique to you. Not everybody in the world is going to be passionate about that, but maybe you. How about this question? If Jesus were in my place, how would he respond? If Jesus was in my career, how would he respond? If my boss said that to Jesus, what he said to me, that ticked me off. How would Jesus respond? It's another way for you to begin to think about ushering the value system of the kingdom, even in your workplace. And then lastly, who are the kingdom people that God's placed around me? Who are the people that God's chose community for me to do this thing with, to live out this subversive strategy with? So as you begin to sort through these questions and questions like this, you're actually beginning to visualize your life around the kingdom of God. And not just around career, not just around relationship, but you're reorienting, you're considering your calling around the idea of the kingdom of God and not just what the world tells us is successful or significant. Paul says none of you had to be impressive None of you had to be wise or from families of privilege to get this job. Your background, it, it doesn't, it's not, it, your life resume will not prevent you from being a part of this team. But it takes regular, if not daily, and hourly meditations thinking through God. How does my calling work itself out in this moment? Sometimes we think about calling as like this long, grand, like, you know, a, a, a lifetime of having this career. Vocation is linked to the word voice. And let me just try to make the, 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 the connection for us. Calling has this interdependence on God's voice. And so if you have not learned how to discern God's voice, it's very hard to discern your calling. It's very hard to discern a vocation. You might be able to discern a career or a job, but it's hard to discern your kingdom vocation if you're not tuning your ears to a voice. It's hard to understand your calling if you're not tuning your ears to the one who's calling you. So it's very linked with moment by moment what we call here at Trinity Life, hearing God's voice, trusting it, and obeying.
Lastly is the subversive king of the kingdom. The subversive king of the kingdom. Paul goes on to say, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one boast, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And what he's saying by that is that God is going to receive credit if we live this way. Not you, God. Now, God's not a megalomaniac. He's not trying to hoard all this credit and all this glory for himself. That's not his, that's not his intention. That's not the Father's heart. God the Father wants good things for us. But he knows pride is not good for us. None of us are strong enough to, to, to carry pride without destroying us. So when Paul says, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, he's not saying that God is withholding glory or credit from us. What he's saying is that the credit goes to the one who can only take the credit and not be made prideful, God. And here's the way that God works in our lives is that when he's working in your life, he'll do it in a way where as he's using you and as he's doing things in you, the end product would be a more humble version of you, less pride. That's good news. Let the one who boasts, not boast in himself, but in the Lord. Most theologians would say that pride is the reason why Adam and Eve fell in the first place. It's the reason why they disobeyed God. Pride is a root sin for a host of all other sins. And the prominent theme that as we've been going through this passage in particular is that God does things in a very counterintuitive way. He likes to use weak, lowly, humble people. That's his strategy. That's his point. And if we're not in that place, oftentimes he'll use us in a way that gets us into that place so that we can continue to partner with him in the way that he's restoring the earth. Taking credit for uh, things that only God can do feeds your ego. It feeds your pride. God, in his plan, begins to destroy the root of evil through uh, establishing the kingdom of God by inverting things of this world. There are two kinds of uh, pride. The first pride is the one that Paul talks about here. It's the one that takes credit. The second kind of pride is a more subtle one. The first pride is linked to Adam and Eve saying, oh, look at that, we can be like God. Let's eat of this fruit and be like God. That's, a, that's taking credit. That's an auto autonomous decision. The second kind of pride that hinders us from, uh, from uh, our relationship with God is this, this, that what happened in the aftermath is Adam and Eve, they fell and they felt shamed. They felt guilt. They begin to hide from God. That's a different kind of pride. And it reminds me of the story that I've, I've told before at least a couple years ago uh, at our church here. It's a story about a prince who uh, he was just, he was bored and so he decided to kind of, uh, this is completely fictional obviously, he decides to go rummage in the forest and as he was uh, just kind of stumbling along in the forest, he sees this dragon in a cave. Uh, usually when you see a dragon in a cave, you run away. So uh, uh, what he, he does is he actually goes to the dragon and he begins to, like, you know, talk with the dragon. And he's a bit nervous at first, but the dragon begins to kind of just talk to him and coach him in. And, and so he builds a relationship with the dragon. So he goes back and forth day after day, just going back and forth, building this relationship with this dragon. And eventually the dragon says, hey, would you like a ride? And so he's very intrigued. So he jumps on the dragon, and the dragon takes him, and they're soaring. And weeks on out, he's soaring with the dragon. And he's doing, you know, all these adventures with the dragon. But nobody knows. His father, the king, doesn't know. None of his other brothers or siblings know. None of the villagers know. And so one night, he jumps on the dragon's back, 
And he begins to realize that he's growing scales on his own skin. And so he's like, I don't know if I should do this anymore because I'm starting to look more like you. And the dragon says, come on. Didn't you have fun when we were, on, when we were up there? So he jumps on the dragon and again. And little did he know that the dragon goes to the village where the kingdom is at and he begins to, to, to breathe fire and destroys the whole entire kingdom. And so the boy, or the prince, he's up there on the dragon and he's just like, he's disappointed with himself. He's, How can I be a part of this chaos? How can I be a part of this destruction? That's not who I am. How can I destroy the very kingdom that, that, that my father intends for me to rule over one day? And so all this chaos is like happening in the kingdom and so... They finally put out the fires and, and, and the kings in, in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the hall and they're having this huge meeting and the, the king is saying, is everybody okay? What's the death toll? And slowly as they are having this meeting, the son shamefully walks through the hallway and he's hanging his head low and he can't believe he's disgusted with himself. And he presents himself before the father and he's full of scales arms back. He was a prince that started looking like the dragon. And the father looks at the prince and says, son, have you been riding the dragon? And the prince has his head low and he's just so ashamed, so guilty. I don't know if you've ever done anything in your life that you just felt so ashamed, so guilty of. And as much as you wanted to tell somebody, you just couldn't because you couldn't get yourself to admit it but you had some kind of dragon that you were riding, you had some kind of other kingdom that you had been aligned with, and yet you had walked away from responsibility, and this is the shame that the prince felt. And so he began to explain to the father what happened in his life. And the father grabbed him. The father says, son, don't you know it's my veins that are running through your body? And he says, who else, who else, which one of you have also ridden this dragon? And slowly, just different people began raising their hands. And the prince saw his older brother, who was known for all these, like, uh, you know, uh, heroic efforts to slay the dragon. He saw his older brother raise his hand as well. And the king says to his sons, and he says to the, the people of the kingdom, he says, you're my people. And you were meant to rule and reign in our kingdom. Some of you have ridden the dragon, but we can't defeat the dragon on our own. We can only defeat the dragon and rule in our kingdom if we do it together. And the Father reminds the Son that you are my Son. My blood flows through your veins. You will never not be my Son. Paul says this in this passage. In verse 30, it says, Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. You have the blood of God flowing over you, through you, around you, reminding you that you are a prince. You are a princess in the kingdom of God, meant for his purposes. Sure, sure you ride your dragons. Sure, late at night, you, you go out and ride your dragons. The lust, the temptation keeps you going back into that world of flying with the dragon, whatever your dragon is. I don't know what your dragon is. But pride keeps you there. Pride keeps it hidden. Pride keeps it behind shame and guilt. 
But Paul's reminding them, you are in Christ Jesus. That is your identity. The wisdom, the righteousness, the sanctification, the redemption, all belong to Jesus, now belongs to you. Those, is your, those are yours as well. The suffering, the foolishness, the death that Jesus endured, that's going to belong to you as well. But the glorification, the redemption, being lifted up, being a representative of God's kingdom to the world, that belongs to you as well. I want to pray for us this morning that if you wrestle with things in your life that you think are preventing you from being effective in God's kingdom, if there's doubt, if there's a behavior, if there's a relationship, if there's something that feels like a dragon in your life and you just keep going back to it, and the shame, the pride of the shame keeps you from stepping forward into the kingdom of God. I want to pray for you this morning because I want to let you know that the very fact that you feel foolish at times and you feel a little bit stupid that you keep climbing this dragon, that very fact is an indicator that God wants to use you in changing the world upside down. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you didn't choose to use perfect people. You knew that that would go to our heads. And so you chose to use struggling people. You chose to use weak people. You're choosing some even now. Came into this auditorium today. They didn't have anything impressive to give. They didn't have anything cool to say. They just showed up this morning. And you're slaying dragons and you're flipping things upside down. You're setting wrong things to rights positions about things and that we've held for years and years and years God you're right now beginning to flip those things upside down God I pray that you would break through our pride the pride that says we take credit but the pride that also says that I'm not good enough I'm just not good enough If that's you, I just want to pray a prayer that you can just pray by yourself right now. The prayer says that, God, I admit that I've ridden that dragon over and over again this week, even this week. And I admit that I'm not good enough. I admit that my sins have held me back. But thank you, Jesus, that in place of my sin, you give me redemption. You give me sanctification. You give me a new purpose, a new assignment, a new calling. Whereas before I contributed to the broken system in the world, today, right now, I choose to contribute to the kingdom of God and what you're doing here. I receive you into my life. I receive your values, your culture, your ways into my life. This morning, I choose you because I know you've chosen me already. I choose you back. I receive you into my life. I want to know my calling. I want to know my vocation. I want to know who am I as a son or a daughter of the King. And I ask that you reveal that to me. And Jesus, I pray for those who are praying that prayer and are thinking through that in their lives, that now you would just seal in their hearts who they are 
They don't, they don't have to ride the dragon of despair. They don't have to contr keep contributing to the broken system in the world. That they're joining this subversive people that you've created, that you started with Christ Jesus, that you're bringing to completion. And God, thank you that we're a part of this. Thank you that this is the mission of Trinity Life. Thank you that this is the calling of our leaders. And now this is the calling of new people taking their next step in their relationship with, with you. So we bless them and bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon.